Today I want to talk about what Jesus said about neighbors. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, the, the Lord's kind of seeding in my heart another uh, series of messages if, 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 if things uh, work that way uh, um, on who is God. And, you know, sometimes uh, you think that's a pretty generic or too broad of a, it's either too, gen- it's too small of a topic, which is ridiculous, or it's too big of a topic, which is true, uh, but we have the Holy Spirit who works with us to show us things that we've not um, really seen yet, and maybe encourage and remind us of some things that we've not seen. And uh, so today, as we talk about neighbors, if there was ever a day in, uh, in when believers should invest in their neighborhoods, it, it's today. You know, we've got we've to take the kingdom to ground level, ground zero. And ground zero really is our immediate neighborhoods. You know, if we're going to make any dent in what we need to be uh, doing, it's going to require that we invest locally our efforts and our energies and, our, uh, and we've got to love on the people around us and to share the life of Christ with them. You know, when I, I was, um, you know, preparing for this, I, I was just curious as to how big a portion and a part the idea of neighbors played in, the, in Judaism. And it, it really plays a great role in the culture uh, of Jesus uh, when, when they, much of what was uh, shared by God in, the, uh, in his word and, and, and even culturally many of the things that were uh, focused upon and developed um, placed a premium on being a good neighbor and uh, considering uh, those who, who live by us. And uh, being a good neighbor uh, is, a, is an obligation to the Jews. It was an obligation in Jesus' day to be good neighbors. And, and that can be a challenge for all of us, you know, at times to be a good neighbor. It requires investment on our part. It requires a, a commitment and an investment on our part. I mean, a deliberate uh, commitment. It means that we've got to step out beyond our, our, our self-imposed limits. You know, sometimes we just say, I can't do this. I'm not a people person, but it's good to see Ms. Baker here today. Welcome. Uh, I uh, always enjoy seeing you. Uh, but as we've come together here today... Jesus said, and I'm just going to read a portion of it, and you can look at the rest of it as well. Uh, in the story of the Good Samaritan, and he, play, he, he shares that, and as he shares the narrative at the end of it, he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And, you know, as we read that, we know obviously it was the Samaritan man who came along, and he helped this man who had been taken, uh, overtaken by some thugs. You know, Leviticus 19.34 says, The stranger that lives among you, uh, and he says, You shall love him as yourself. And, uh, you know, that requires a, a, a prayerful awakening and a commitment, and uh, it requires that we be intentional in doing that. And so we know the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all that we are. And the second commandment is attached to the first, and that is that we love our neighbors as ourselves. So I want to talk for a moment about the balance of a believer's relationship with their neighbor. Certainly, we don't want to be overbearing. Uh, We don't want to be the neighbor that people dread seeing come their way. 
But we certainly want to be the kind of neighbor that people feel comfortable with enough uh, to uh, take the, uh, the uh, relationship at least beyond the casual. You know, uh, the other, other day, and, and they've asked twice, and I'm keeping inventory of how many times they asked. So when we asked, then I'll feel better. Uh, but she had, uh, the neighbor lady had called and asked if we had, uh, I think it was sour cream. And, uh, you know, we, we weren't there to get the call, uh, but, you know, Robin saw the uh, text and she had asked, and I, I just kind of felt a little honored that she would ask us for these things, and uh, she asked us something else, I don't know if it was eggs or something, uh, another time, and, um, you know, it's just nice, it feels good to know that they, they feel at least comfortable enough to ask us for uh, sour cream and eggs, you know, so that's a good thing, you know, and it, it is a good thing. And one other time, they asked for Parmesan, uh, and so, uh, you know, that one I had a little harder time separating with because the the, the container was almost empty, and uh, I had enough to eat and die, and uh, so... But no, we shared that. And I like that. I like that we have that kind of relationship. I, I like that we can return favors, uh, little favors one to another, because that's really what makes a neighborhood a neighborhood, you know. Uh, not building up walls of division and separation, but as a kingdom people, we are always looking for the increase of the kingdom of God. Because that's what God desires. He said that we're to pray, thy kingdom come. And I do realize that that won't be fulfilled completely until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. There's no way that the, we, heaven is here presently. There's no way heaven would include much of what we see going on here. And, uh, but we are to pray and we are to live in a, in a kingdom mindset. That means that when we, we pray for, uh, for God's provision, we pray with a kingdom mentality because that means that we are trusting uh, the King of Kings to provide from His abundance what we have need of. When the Scripture says, My God uh, shall supply all of, my, uh, all of my needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus, our God is a wealthy God. Amen? How many of you know that? Your father's pretty wealthy, and he, well, he's not pretty wealthy. He has it all, and uh, we live in a world where we don't live in that kind of uh, day-to-day experience uh, here, but we, we do see that God provides, and he blesses us each and every day. A telling question was, in Luke 10, 29, uh, but he wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That's so interesting because it clarifies or speaks out what we might not have gathered without that little additional commentary when he says he wants to justify himself. That means he wants to rein in his, uh, his, uh, uh, his responsibilities to his neighbors. Because this man was a, an expert in the law. And you know, there are certain people whom uh, this man would have had a problem with, I would suspect, and one of those would have been uh, uh, Samaritans. You know, and there's a lot of reasons why this man, being educated in the law, would have had problems with Samaritans. And you say, why are we talking about Samaritans? Because Jesus, in his story uh, of the man who had fallen among thieves, was helped by a Samaritan. 
And I believe that that was intentional, that was purposeful, because, you know, when this man asked, who is my neighbor, Jesus brought that forward in a very bold way when he presented this story. And, you know, his question sounds to be much more discriminatory than neighborly. You know, sometimes we just can't help people because we've already have preconceived mindsets about people. You know, we, we formulate things that aren't true necessarily about people, and therefore we excuse ourselves from being Christ's hand to them when the opportunity avails because we know them, and they're not our kind of people, right? They don't, they don't live the way we live, and uh, they're not from where we're from, and they're strange and weird. And, but you know what? Even strange and weird people have to eat, right? So if you can send them a snack over, they'll eat it, Right? And if they're weird, maybe they'll bite your hand before they eat the rest of the cake, but at least they, that you've extended your hand. And, and so Jesus said in Luke 6.35, Love your neighbors, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. He says, love your enemies. Boy, he's really blowing it out here, you know, as we look at the Lord and his comments in Scripture. You know, you got a man saying, yeah, okay, I've done all this. And he says, but, but who, who are my neighbors? Who should I be kind to? Who should I help? Because I've helped a lot of people in a lot of places. So who, who do I need to help? And, and the Bible knows and discerns his intent. And his intent was to, to excuse himself from having to go beyond what he would normally do to help somebody and to be a neighbor. You know, the one thing about sermons, it should always challenge you and I to go beyond where we are. Sermons are not comfort food. Hear that again. Sermons are not comfort food so that we can sit on the couch of ease and throw some popcorn down and have a little swig of this. No, not, you know what I meant by that, not a swig of, I'm talking about, a, for me it would be iced tea, uh, sugar-free, uh, by the way. But sermons aren't comfort food. They're not meant to scratch your itch. If you came with an itch that you wanted scratched, you've got to deal with that. That's not my purpose for being here today. But it should always challenge us to go beyond where we are, and if we think we're going far enough, then we're not going far enough. We're comfortable with where we are, then that's a problem. Because I don't know that Christianity ever finds, a, finds that place or that niche where we think we kind of can go on autopilot. Because about the time we do that, God introduces us to, a, to somebody that needs him and their lives are very different than ours. It's important to note that Jesus identifies the main characters in his story. And it appears that there were three Jews. I would suspect the victim was a, was a Jew. And the, 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 we had a Levite and a priest who were Jews. And the main hero of the story, of course, is a Samaritan. And so you, you can imagine that this religious, uh, this legal, uh, religious law man... He would have all kinds of problems with a Samaritan if, uh, if he were like most uh, of the Jews. He would have had a real problem with him. You know, and it's interesting that Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story because the, uh, the Samaritan, you know, that's the one thing. God makes the hero of the story people whom we wouldn't select. 
Oh, we want the guy that high profile, he's done this and she's done that. And I'm going to tell you, Jesus looked at a widow with two coins and he said, she's given more than all these big shots. <laughs> oh, they came up with such pomp and such, you know, oh, yeah, look at, see this, everybody. And, you know, that woman came up through two coins in and she's the only one that Jesus said anything about. And so Jesus puts this Samaritan forward in a story. It was meant to challenge this uh, religious scholar. It was meant to challenge him. You know, and if you come to church and you're not challenged, then it's because you're not really listening to the Holy Spirit. I didn't say you weren't listening to the sermon because the Holy Spirit can speak even when the sermon uh, isn't hitting, right? Right? We're in an atmosphere where God is moving by his spirit. People say we need a move of God. God is moving. Are you in it? You think God, How many here understand God is moving? It's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard when we say God's not moving. We're not seeing God move. God's, if God weren't moving, God would be dead. And God's alive. It really comes down to whether we're in it or not. I want to be in the move of God. I want to be positioned in the center of what God is doing. God is moving. This idea that we have to coerce God to move is, is a false notion. Because God, you, God cannot be immobile. He cannot be indifferent. He cannot be lifeless and inanimate. That's not him. He's life. But, you know, we don't, if we're not seeing it in our lives it's because we're not we, we're not committed to it not really because saying one thing and doing the the right thing can be very different wonder how this jewish leader was processing all this when jesus told him this story and uh, i would imagine as i say that jesus spoke a lot of things to challenge people jesus didn't just pacify people jesus spoke the hard truths to people Remember the rich young ruler, right? He, he wanted to know, you know, uh, he, he wanted to know really if he was okay. And he says, I've done this, I've done that. And Jesus said, okay, go sell everything you have and, uh, and give it away to the poor and then come follow me. And then the rich uh, young ruler went away disappointed because he had much wealth. And the Bible says that Jesus loved him and cared for him. Uh, Lancelot uh, Andrewis was the, the chairperson of the King James Translation Committee, and he said, Every sinner, as he is a sinner, is to be hated. Every man, as he is a man, is to be loved. Let us love men so that we love not their sins, and love them for that which God made them, not uh, that by which sin they made themselves. You know, God, we are to love everyone. But that we love redemptively. We love the people whom God has purposed for others to be. You know, help me, Lord, to see something that I don't normally see with my natural eyes when I look at people every day. Because how, how thoughtless and dismissive are we many times when we encounter other people? We don't see any potential in any of them. A lot of times they're in our way, right? Or they're people that we encounter with little thought. 
But until the church really sees, you know, and Jesus said, open your eyes and see, for the fields are white and they're ripened unto harvest. You know, until we really truly open our eyes and see with the eyes of of the Holy Spirit, we are not going to do much more than talk about what we need to do. You with me? Well, that was good. I appreciate that, brother. That means a lot. That means a lot. I do. It does mean a lot. The Samaritans occupy. Uh, uh, here's the thought about the Samaritans and why it would have been such a big challenge to regard them as a neighbor, to treat them neighborly, perhaps for this religious uh, uh, scholar. You know, the Samaritans occupied the country formerly belonging to the uh, tribe of Ephraim and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And the capital of Samaria, or the capital of the country was Samaria. You know, when the ten tribes were carried away into captivity to Assyria, the king of Assyria sent people uh, to inhabit uh, Samaria. Non-Jewish people to inhabit Samaria. And these foreigners intermarried with the Israelites, with the Israelite population. And, uh, and so the Samaritans were, were a mixed breed. You know, they were considered to be dogs, impure dogs. And I wonder if sometimes that's how we see people. We find church going folk. I don't know. I always wanted to use that word. So, we, 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 I wonder if we look at people and all we see are filthy dogs. And we just regard them as, you know, and, and we don't say that, but really, come on now. How many of us you know, see a lot of people that we are grossly in, uncomfortable being around? I mean, hey, I'm not, I, I, I live in this world too. And we are dismissive of them because they are just weird and they're extreme and they're perverted and they're over. You know, the fact of the matter is that uh, if it were not for the grace of God, you and I would be there today, yesterday. You know, it's the grace of God that has not yet been in, uh, realized in their lives that brings them into that transformation and that change. But, you know, and we, we sometimes maybe... I think we do. I think we just look at vile, sinful people. And the Bible talks about vile, sinful people. But here's the difference. God is God and I'm not. So when God makes an observation about the corrupt, fallen nature of the world, that doesn't give me a license to prosecute everyone else. Because as far as I know, you and I are... Neither jury or judge. And our call while we're here is to be ambassadors crying out to a lost world, inviting them into the grace of God, to know redemption and to know salvation. Because it's much easier to throw stones than it is to bend our knees. You know, it was easier for those who came to this woman taken in adultery to stone her and to destroy her than it would have been for them to help her. And so when we think about these Samaritans, the Samaritans first worshipped the idols of their own nations, but being troubled with lions, they supposed it was because they had not honored the God of that territory. A Jewish priest was therefore sent to them from Assyria to instruct them in the Jewish religion. 
They were instructed from the book of Moses, but still retained many of their idolatrous customs. The Samaritans embraced a religion that was a mixture of Judaism and idolatry. Because the Israelites, inhabited, uh, inhabitants of Samaria, had intermarried with foreigners and adopted their idolatrous religion, Samaritans were universally despised by the Jews. You know, there were so many grounds for animosity between devout Jews and these Samaritans. There were so many reasons, you know. Uh, and we look at this, this hero whom Jesus places in the middle of this scene who demonstrates what a neighbor really is. And I would imagine he wouldn't have known the man who had been overtaken by thugs and mugged and robbed, right? But he, he, he had compassion in his heart, a sense of responsibility to do something to assist this man that the Levite and the priest excused it because of their other duties. You know, we have no other duties in life than to share Christ with other people. Oh, we have responsibilities, day-to-day responsibilities. But when you really get down to it, you, you live your life and you will die or the rapture will come. And as a believer, the, really, the, the one thing that will really matter is how many people we have influenced for Christ. You know, no offense, but the queen and, and we, we is uh, laid out for what uh, procession, ceremony, services for, for, for 10 days. And, you know, that's all great. But, you know, for us, we understand that uh, it's what we've done for the kingdom, another kingdom, right? It's not what we do for this kingdom because this kingdom is temporary and it's passing and fading away. doesn't mean we're not involved and we don't help with temporal and practical needs. just means we have a bigger view of why we're here and the importance of what we do. The Jews, after their return from Babylon, began rebuilding their temple. And while Nehemiah was engaged in building the walls of Jerusalem, the Samaritans vigorously attacked, attempted to halt the, the, uh, under, the undertaking. They verbally assaulted. They tried to undermine. So there's an offense the Samaritans committed against the Jews. The Samaritans built a temple for themselves on Mount Gerizim, which the Samaritans insisted was designated by Moses as the place where the nation should worship. Sanballat, the leader of the Samaritans, established his son-in-law as the high priest. uh, This idolatrous religion of the Samaritans thus became perpetuated. It began to, to take root and hold and spread. Samaria became a place of refuge for the outlaws of Judea. The Samaritans willingly received Jewish criminals and refugees from justice. The violators of the Jewish laws and those who had been excommunicated found themselves, found safety for themselves in Samaria, greatly increasing the hatred that existed between the two nations. The Samaritans received only the first five books of Moses and rejected the writings of the prophets and the Jewish traditions. From these irreconcilable differences uh, arose such a contempt and such a hatred for one another that Samaritans were considered as the worst of the human race and the Jews had no dealings with them. In spite of the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans, Jesus broke down the barriers between them. 
How many would like to do what Jesus did? Come on now. Like break down the barriers that divide people. And I want to tell you in just a moment, I want to say something that's really important. And, uh, you know, I think, I think I've said some things that are important. But I got something else I want to say as well. In spite of the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans, Jesus broke down the barriers between them. Doesn't mean that we, we take sin lightly. Doesn't mean that we excuse it. It doesn't mean that we ignore it. We stand up for righteousness all the time. We represent Christ everywhere we go and the values of the kingdom in every institution and place. And we verbalize those, we speak those, and we live those. But when it gets down to winning people for Christ, we have to be able to cut through some of that in order to reach people. You know, that's why sometimes when we stand from the pulpit and we, we make a lot of, uh, and we politicize things too, so much that we even begin to separate and to divide people within the church. And then people can no longer hear the pastor because they believe that he, uh, he, he's, a, he's a Republican. I am a Republican, by the way, if you're worried about that. I am a conservative. I, I vote Christian values. I don't, I don't, I don't, that's what I support. That's who I am. But I want you to know if you're a Democrat... I will pray for you. No, I'm just kidding. You. I, will, I will pray. I will serve you just like I will serve anybody. I won't tag you. I don't care what your political affiliation is. And here, listen to this. This may be a shock. If, you, if I believe in marriage, and I believe, and I've spoken directly, I think you know that, about the marriage between one man and one woman. But you know, ultimately, I'm going to love everybody. I'm not going to give someone a lesser effort because of whatever it is that their, their, their life is or their lifestyle is. And you know what? I know what the Scriptures say, and we need to teach our children what it says about marriage and, and the relationship between men and women. That's a responsibility that is on you. That is not on the church. We do need to stand up for truth, and you'll hear it here. You can't ever say that you've not heard it here, because you know that's not true. But you're, it's your responsibility. You know, you're worried about prayer in school. Teach your kids to pray everywhere. I mean, you know, I, I grow weary of hearing people saying, well, they took prayer out of school, and that was the end of the church. No, if that's the case, the church was done before they did that. Because nobody's going to stop your, kid, your kids from praying. Come on. The law doesn't limit your ability to pray. Your law doesn't limit your ability to be a witness for Christ. Because you know what? The New Testament church grew in spite of all of that. Peter was told to stop preaching the gospel. Remember? They brought him before the Sanhedrin. And they, and they warned him to stop it. And then they beat them and, and they went away rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer reproach for the cause of Christ. And you know what they did? They went back to the other believers, told them what they did, they pray, what had happened. They prayed and then they went out and preached some more. There is an inference of self-justification in this man's question. The breadth of those to whom we bear responsibility is viewed much more narrowly in our eyes than in God's view. It really isn't about you and I. 
uh, to personally reach every person on the planet. But we are called to reach those in our, in our neighborhoods and in our sphere of influence. And we are to support those who are out reaching the far ends of the earth and praying for them. But you and I, if we really understand that it, it's what we do in, in our homes, in our communities, in the places of our most immediate presence and sphere of influence, that's your calling. And to pray for those who are missionaries and evangelists and support them when you can. And, you know, Franklin Graham's going to be up in York, and we do encourage you to go. There's uh, information out there on the table, uh, and so we hope that you'll, you'll make your way up there. I think it's going to be a wonderful day. Together, we all do our part in, in our mission fields daily. We are to be a network of ministers Obviously, Jesus did not direct those to whom he spoke to personally all win Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. But he wanted them to be faithful in their sphere of influence. And sometimes we don't move from our comfortable place and God allows persecution to come as he did in the early church. And the early church was dispersed, right? And it says they went everywhere, everywhere they went, they were preaching. Anyhow, mm, it's 11 o'clock. You know, the Methodist really, they beat you to the buffet again. The Baptist will in about 10 minutes. There's a balance. We are to be his hand extended, but we cannot be everyone's everything all the time. You understand that. When you spread yourself so thin, your focus becomes diluted and your efforts fall short. But if you identify those whom God has placed in your sphere of influence and you direct your efforts toward them with intention and with grace and love, it gives you a focal point. And when we say, oh, I'm going to win the whole world, we're just going to win everybody, you know, that's just, uh, you know, that's, that's not going to happen. But you can win the, your world, your sphere of influence, and you can be part of what God does elsewhere through prayer. We're not in Africa today, but we can, we can intercede for them and pray for them and support them. We're not in uh, Russia today, but we can pray for those in Russia and, and minister uh, through prayer. The initial engagement of our, our neighbors is a critical first step. But even when we are, are not able to travel beyond those moments with that individual personality, I'm going to share this with you. know, there's a funny way that God connects us with our neighbors. I told you the guy with the snowblower, you know, mine, I got rid of it because I didn't want to use it anymore. And then he gave me the exact same one, uh, not mine, but same one. But, well, you know, I have a, I have a habit sometimes, uh, and... Um, I get up in the morning, and, and I'm walking around, and you know, you don't have to envision this, and I don't want you to, but I, I walk around, and I have my boxers on, I walk around. I walked out into the garage one day, the garage door was open, and I walked out there, and I, the neighbor lady's standing there. <laughs> Honest story, and I, I stood there, and I just froze. I, I had no idea what to do. I, I just went. And uh, so... Uh, you know, and I was, I was paranoid because I said to Robin, they're going to have it out that I'm the, I'm the neighborhood pervert. <laughs> I mean, that's true. I mean, I was just standing there, and I, I mean, camo uh, uh, boxers, and, 
I, I think she probably thought I just came out to say hello intentionally. And one day it was bothering me so much that she's, uh, this lady's walking on the sidewalk. I pulled over and I said, listen, uh, I really want to apologize that I was in my boxers uh, the day that I saw you. I didn't expect anyone to be there. And, you know, uh, this is good and probably an insult at the same time. She said, oh, I really didn't notice. And then I did feel stupid because then she did think I was a pervert. <laughs> you know, I, that's true. I, I told her, I'm sorry I was out. I came out. I said, I was so embarrassed when I saw you the other day and I was in my boxers. And, you know, it just was one of those, you know, sometimes you just better leave it alone. <laughs> I did notice that her husband now, every time I ride by, used to wave at me. He doesn't anymore. I mean, he does, and he turns his back when I, I go like this, and he goes. <laughs> Our love for those within the community of faith is a higher calling. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to try to move on this quick. Uh, it's a high calling. It's a higher calling. Listen to this scripture, Galatians 6.10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. You say, well, that's selfish. Well, it's in the word that we are to treat our own well, that we are to attend to the needs of those in our own community uh, first. Because sometimes we'll run all over the place and we have people in our churches that are hurting that maybe we can in some way minister to. The Bible says, uh, Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Our ministry to those within the body needs to be exemplary and outstanding. Matthew 25, we've all read it, and it's about the, the sheep and the goats. And Jesus says, uh, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it uh, to me. You know, you read that scripture, and we just think a lot of times it's the people out there that are going through hardships and adversities, and it can. But there are a lot of those scholars who believe that this is a direct statement about believers, followers of Christ who have been imprisoned, who are sick, who are hungry, who are naked, who are standing in need. And he says, that when you have, when you have done to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. You know, we have a responsibility to those in the church because it really undercuts our, 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 uh, our comments about winning the world when we don't take care. And I, I'm not saying that we start doling out money. Bethel, you know, we can, we can start doling it out when people, you know, dole it in, you know. But as believers, we have a higher level of responsibility to one another than we do in the world. And this isn't socialism. We look at Acts 5 and we say this is a perfect example of socialism. And while I'm on it, I'm not for socialism either. Okay, so uh, I'm just saying that, you know, Acts 5 is not the blueprint for government-mandated socialism. What they did, they did of their own free will. They did out of compassion. You know, even Ananias, who lied about what he had given, right, was confronted about it. And he, and he was told by Peter, as long as you could really, what he said was, as it was yours, you could do whatever you want. You could give whatever portion you wanted to give or, or none of it. 
but he saw fit to lie so that he would look better. And, you know, we think that, the, that God doesn't care about that kind of stuff, but it appears that he does. Unity will never truly exist among us where we minister to one another without grace and truth. We are to be truthful, we are not to lie, we're not to sugarcoat things, but we got to walk with discernment and with tact and love. Jesus was the embodiment of grace and truth. And I'm, I'm going to ask Tammy to come. I, I, the Tower of Babel is the model of man's ambitions for unity at the expense of their real identity and, and, and God. I want you to hear this. If the world came together in the faulty context of being homogenous body where all gods are one and all religions are the same, we would have what the scriptures characterize as the aims of Antichrist. So while we may be neighbors, we're not from one homogenous, indistinctive religion or cult of godliness. We're not just all going to come and sing Kumbaya. That's not going to happen. And it doesn't have to happen. You think when they built the Tower of Babel, they wanted to do something great to make a name for themselves. And, 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 they, and, and God saw this and he said, well, have none of this. And they dispersed them and they scattered and their languages were confused. And, you know, because they tried to get this false unity built around their own flesh, their own greatness. And we look at this press for all, we're all the same, you know, one world stuff, you know, hey, one, one church, one world. I want to tell you that it's not true. And so you say, what are you backtracking now on reaching out to people? No, I'm not. I'm just simply saying that God made us distinct and different. Blacks don't need to apologize for being black. Whites don't need to apologize for being white, Right? We don't have to revise history to accommodate agendas. You know, when you and I think about this today, what happened on the day of Pentecost? When God poured out his Holy Spirit upon the church, if he wanted everyone just to be homogenous, he would have given one language and they would have all just spoken that one language, exalting and praising the Lord. But what happened? Those, uh, those uh, Jews who had come from different nations and places around the, the, the earth there were gathered. And they could hear them speaking in their language and in their tongue. But God could have made it one language and given everybody the ability to interpret what they said. But he didn't. There is a heavenly language. But on that day, they were speaking in languages they had never learned and yet others knew just in the as in with the tower of babel that apostate calling for people to come together as one and to cast off any unique distinctions of who you are and your culture and your your people you know god brings cultures together but he doesn't make everyone homogenous the beauty of this church and this gospel is that God brings Africans and Americans and, and Germans and, and Europeans for that matter. He brings us all into one body. 
And the Holy Spirit ministers and enriches each culture, but all of them are joined and baptized into one spiritual body in Christ. That's the only oneness there really is. It's being brought together in Christ. Because to do it for our own purposes and our own uh, reasonings is just humanism and godless. I'm going to ask you if you'd stand with me for a moment and As we have come here today, um, I read this scripture and it it excites my heart every time I read it. Revelation 11, 8. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. There's oneness. The world won't get there before that time. But we can love people who are different than us. We can, we can serve others who are different than we are. We can help people regardless of their nationality or their skin color or their lifestyle. We can still love and help people redemptively. Right, church? Because when we cannot help people because we have self-imposed standards and we can't love people with the love of Jesus in us, And we don't really serve the great commission that God has called us to. I'm going to close with with this. And, uh, you know, that the the picture you need to have here is central, and it gives you a lot to think about. This uh, uh, expert of the law said, who is my neighbor? I'm asking you to entertain that. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And I want you to entertain the fact that Jesus in his story made the Samaritan the the hero of the story to demonstrate what neighbors are. They're not divided by culture. They're not divided even by, uh, you know, we have this idea that we are to, to not have anything to do with the unsaved. But I want to tell you, that's stupid. Because you can't catch fish if you're fishing in a pond where there are no fish. And sometimes that's what we do. And that's why we don't see the increase. Because we're choosing safe ponds to fish in. Because we know no one there will threaten us. I'm going to say this. And you say, well, you were doing okay. And then you blew it. I want, I want to say that, that love is love or is it? Jackie DeShannon in 1965 released the single, What the World Needs Now is Love. It uh, made it to number seven in the top 100, and it's a popular tune from the 60s and 70s that we probably have heard many times, depending how old you are. I've heard it many times. And that's a wonderful concept. And it's a wonderful truth. As long as we understand that the love that the world needs is the love of Christ. The God love. The agape love. That affects every other form and expression of love on the planet. Not not this vile, sexualized stuff that 
is called love. That has nothing to do with it. How many know, understand, I don't want to be getting in trouble. How many know sex is not love? Some, some, uh, some men are like, what? Uh, <laughs> I want to tell you, it's an, it, it, it's an intimate expression of love between a man and a wife, right? But in this world that glamorizes lust, infidelity, sex, rampant, uh, you know, that, that is not love. That is a lot of stuff, but it's not love. And so as we, we leave this world, leave the, yeah, leave this world, we're all going to at some point, leave this church today. Understand, and I hear people say it and I see signs and I don't agree with the, I know where it's coming from and I can't buy it that way, but I, I don't make, I don't make an issue out of it because I'm, what I, my, my approach to that is that I'm, I'm going to show you what love really is by the way it, it flows out of my life. Because people a lot of times won't hear you anyhow, but they will see what you're doing. And they'll see the distinction and the difference that your life makes. 1 John 4, 8, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. The characteristics of God's love. God demonstrated his love uh, for us that while we were yet sinners, he died for us in Romans 5, 8. It's faithful love. Knowing, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, he is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. It's an enduring and eternal love, not this fickle feeling, I love you, I like you, I hate you. Psalm 136.1 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Psalms 36, 5 says, Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Now give us that agape love. Let that flow through us. Let, let us have that. When we exercise our brotherly love or our romantic love or whatever it is, let, let the love of God really define the, the character of those expressions. I close with this, R.C. Sproul. uh, He said, long ago, Augustine of Hippo pointed out that the desire of every human heart is to experience a love that is transcendent. Regrettably for us today, however, I don't think there's any word in the English language that has been more stripped of the depth of its meaning than the word love. Due to the shallow romanticism of secular culture, we tend to view the love of God in the same way popular music, art, and literature voice love. Yet the Bible says God's love is far different and far greater. You know, as we close here, I'm going to ask Tammy if she'd uh, uh, just lead us here. And uh, I want to thank all of you who connected online, if you're still with us here. And uh, I just want you to know you're loved, you're cared for, and you're very much a part of what God is doing here. Even if you're not physically in the building, God is using this to bring us together in Him. And we love you and we pray over you. This morning as we... Just take this moment and say, God, help me, help me to evaluate whether I have asked the question, well, who is my neighbor? So that we could justify not reaching 
beyond our comfort zone. Lord, help us to see that the world will only change one house, one neighborhood at a time. Lord, we can have sweeping moves of the Holy Spirit throughout a region and across the world, but Lord, help us to to spark those flames in our communities, in our neighborhoods. Lord, give us a real love for people, not this phony stuff that says, oh, I just love the world because Jesus did, when, Lord, our actions don't show that we do. Our words don't reflect that. Lord, help us not to turn our back on those for whom Christ died, and that would be a larger group of people than we are comfortable acknowledging. Give us a larger depth of compassion and love. Lord, let us move with discernment. Let us speak words anointed and filled with uh, prophetical truth. And as we, Lord God, speak into a generation that doesn't really know you, doesn't know you. Let us move among the unsaved as though we were with Jesus as he walked through the crowds and he ministered to those who were lost. Help us to view people as sheep in need of a shepherd. Hallelujah. We give you ourselves, Lord. We surrender our hearts here today more fully and completely to you. Grow your church, Lord God, and let us be those who, Lord God, are sowing and watering and praying and reaping. Hallelujah, Lord God. Thank you for listening. You can find us online at BethelAG.com or on Facebook at Bethel Assembly of God, Littlestown, Pennsylvania. Our services are also live streamed every Sunday on our YouTube channel, Bethel AG, Littlestown, Pennsylvania.